Well, good evening. How's everybody doing tonight? I uh, apologize in advance. I'm battling a little bit of a head cold. And so if you hear sniffling or uh, I know that's faux pas for people with microphones to cough and sniffle, but um, I don't know what else to do. And so just glad I'm here. I got back from man camp. Any men in the house that went to man camp? Can we? All right. Four of us will get together afterwards and huddle up here. It was a phenomenal weekend. It really was. Uh, about 180, 190 from Cornerstone that went up in about three or 400 in total from four or five other churches. And uh, what, a, what a phenomenal experience. I hope that some of the things that we learned up there uh, could, could show up here at Cornerstone. Not just a good weekend, a fun time, but could actually show up in the lives of the men who went there. And, and that their spouses or kids or both could see some change um, for the better. That would be a wonderful thing. And, and really, guys, that's why we gather at times like this is not just because we don't have anything else to do on Tuesday nights, but because we really want change. We want different lives, better lives. Uh, and I'm convinced that only comes from uh, learning God's word. And what a better way to do it than learn together. Let's, let's feed off of each other. So if this is your first time here at the mine, uh, welcome. This is a, a, a kind of a large group Bible study. And we just get together and there are mics here that roam around the room. And if you have a question or thought or comment, please feel free. Uh, please don't leave uh, without asking your question or comment. Um, and I'll stay after. If you have some questions or thoughts, I'd love to talk with you as well, okay? Um, let's dive right in. We have two more weeks left after tonight. And we've got to finish Uh, all of chapter 5. And so we left off last week right at chapter 4 at the back half. So if you have your Bibles, grab them and go to James chapter 4. We're going to try to finish up James chapter 4 and bleed into a little bit of James chapter 5. You'll recall last week we really ended by talking about this idea of God's will. Uh, In fact, in James chapter 4, starting in 13, James is really speaking to those who are arrogant. And he comes to them and he says, come now in chapter 4, verse 13, you who say today or tomorrow we shall go to such and such a city, spend a year there, engage in business, make a profit, yet you don't know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while, then it vanishes away. Instead... You ought to say, verse 15, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it to him, it is a sin. And so we left off last week really discussing this issue of when we say our prayers, when we get up each morning, can we, can we just put a comma after everything we say and can we say, if it's your will? God, I would like to do X, Y, and Z, comma, if it's your will. God, I would like for you to heal Aunt Mary, comma, if it's your will. God, I would love to, you know, run a business, comma, if it's your will. Is that appropriate? Can we say that? And really what we landed on last week was we can get caught up in the tradition of saying that as a safety net. That we can get caught up in hearing that over and over again in other venues we've been to or or other churches or other groups we've been a part of. Maybe you grew up and your parents said that a lot. And we feel like it's just a safety net by way of saying, well, I really want so-and-so healed, but God, if it's your will that they be healed, then we're covering our bases that way. And that's what we landed on last week was that's not necessarily what James is saying here. But rather, James is suggesting that when I say, if it's your will, what I'm really suggesting is, God, I want to come under your will. So here's your will, and I want to come under it with every area of my life. Not just the areas I'm doing well in, but as James mentions, guys, throughout the four chapters we've looked at so far, it's really those areas that I'm struggling in. It's really those areas that, uh, truth be told, God, I haven't given over to you. And what I think he's suggesting here in the example he uses is here's got a business person saying, hey, we're going to go over here next year and make a big profit. And James is saying, how can you say that? You have no idea what tomorrow is going to look like. How can you predict what a year from now is going to look like? But his real point is, aren't you that arrogant to suggest that you're going to do anything outside of the will of God? Well, that led us on this little, we really ended last week on this little trail of, well, what is God's will? 
Because if we say things like, well, you're going to be outside of God's will, and you may have heard people say that from time to time, oh my gosh, I don't want to be outside of God's will. It's a great Christian ease, it's a great religious term, it's a great way to throw around something that the family of God would seemingly know about. But every time someone's brought that to my attention, since I've become a Christian, I've always wanted to ask them, I don't know what you mean by that. What do you mean I'm outside of God's will? Have you ever been outside of God's will? What did that look like? Did you change? Did you, did, 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 did you grow? Did you move locations? I mean, what does it look like to be in or out of God's will? And I would, I would suggest this, guys. That's a pretty dangerous thing to say to somebody, right? Oh, my gosh, you hear about Frank? Yeah, it's a shame. He's living outside of God's will. Poor Frank. Well, what... what? Well, what does that look like for Frank? I mean, is that, is that even possible? And so I just want to start tonight really by, by maybe just at a 30,000 foot level, just addressing this issue because, because guys, honestly, I'm, I'm kind of tired of, of hearing something that's being said time and time again and really asking, do we even know what that means? And what I mean by that is this, we know that there are really three types of God's will, um, one is, we looked at this last week, I, I think anyway, one is his sovereign will. Okay, and we looked at God's sovereign will and we decided that God's sovereign will, by definition, is his predetermined plan that determines everything that has ever happened in the universe and will ever happen. So take your Bibles, grab your Bibles, go with, go with me to Revelation chapter 4, a couple of passages that we can look at here. Um, Romans 9, maybe 19, um, Revelation 4, I think 11. Let's go to Revelation 4 and see if this sheds a little bit of light on it. Back of your Bibles, Revelation chapter 4. What does it mean, God, that you have a sovereign will? Uh, and the angels here in Revelation 4 are talking, or they are, is it the angels? Uh, no, it's the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down, verse 8, before the Lamb, each having a uh, harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayer of the saints. And they sang a new song. They sang the song in verse 9, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, you purchased, and did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And then I looked at, uh, and I heard a loud voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and elders and the number of them was in the myriads and myriads, thousands and thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches, wisdom. I'm in, I'm in chapter five, aren't I? Okay, so when I do that, I need someone to shout out, hey, idiot, back up a chapter. I mean, God's word is good, folks, but that was like a waste of 30 seconds right there. Chapter 4, verse 11. <laughs> and the 24 elders will fall down. It's him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever. And they will cast their crowns before him saying, here we go. Worthy are you, O Lord, and our God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. God created all things and because of his will, they were created and existed. That's what we mean by God has a sovereign will. Nobody asked God, or God didn't ask anyone their opinion while he was creating and causing things to exist. He did it, he did it alone, and nobody challenges that. In fact, I think last week we just touched on Romans chapter 9. And if you really want a full exposition on God's sovereign will, just read the entire chapter of Romans 9. It really speaks of God at work without our help. And we suggest that, that that is God's sovereign will. There is a God, folks, that we can release life to. We can release uh, the economy of all things to. And we can say, while things happen here on earth that are good, that are bad, that are challenging, that are, that are peaceful, that are understandable, and things that are confusing, there is an umbrella over all of those things called the sovereign will of God. And we can trust in that. And, and quite frankly, though I don't understand it, 
I appreciate it. I'm thankful that I'm a finite being who worships an infinite God. I'm thankful that I don't have all the answers, not only to life, but the life hereafter. People ask me all the time, especially since Leanne has died, what, what's heaven going to be like? I, I can tell you a little bit about what scripture says. We did a, a study this past summer, but that's just scratching the surface. I don't, I, it's an infinite God who set up this location called heaven that people who know him personally will go forever. And how that looks and what forever looks like and how you and I will wake up 10,000 years from now, I don't know. But I know it to be true, and so I trust in God's sovereignty. I release life to God. But there's a great thing called his moral will. And his moral will, then, is all of the moral commands we have in the Bible. So go with your Bible, take your Bibles and go to, let's go to um, First Thessalonians. How about that? First Thessalonians. Uh, let's go to First Thessalonians chapter 4. And let's start in verse 1. How about that? Okay. Uh, let's go to First Thessalonians chapter 4. And there's actually a couple of passages in Thessalonians, but let's start in verse 4, or chapter 4. Let's go to verse 1. Paul is speaking to the church at Thessalonica. And he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, New Testament, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that is, as you receive from us instruction on how you ought to walk and please God, that you may, just as you're actually doing, that you may excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Now verse 3, for this is the will of God. Okay, this is God's plan. This is God's will, your sanctification, your growing up in him. That is, example, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passions like the Gentile who does not know God. And he goes on that no man should transgress his brother. So he says, here's the will of God. If you want to know what God's will is, I will tell you what his will is as it pertains to sexual, your, your sexuality. Uh, the Greek word there is actually... Pornia. Uh, let's see, it's. Is that right? Uh, something like that. Pornia. And it means, pornia is where we get the root word porn for pornography. This means sexual immorality. Now, there are many schools of thoughts on pornia. Um, there are two big schools of thoughts. One is that that pertains strictly to um i knew i had this one that's like that i strictly to sexual intercourse that that paul is saying here that for this is the will of god you're saying that you abstain from sexual intercourse and the broader school of thought would be no it's anything sexually immoral it could be pornography it could be adultery it could be sex before marriage it could be anything like that so depending on what school of thought you take at the very least it's sexual intercourse everyone agrees with that so so if you're not married in here tonight and you're wondering, should, can I have sex? Should I have sex outside of marriage? Paul is saying, I don't have, we don't have to pray about this. We don't have to discuss it. You don't have to get on your knees and really go into your prayer closet and, gee, God, we're really, you know, I really want to. Paul's saying it's wrong. It's sin. This is the will of God that you abstain from this. The reason that we call it the moral will of God, though, is because what do you and I have the option of doing? We have the option of disobeying. God's will is that you and I abstain from sexual immorality. Do you think that's happening? I'm teaching, um, I'm teaching tomorrow, uh, you can pray for me about this too, I'm teaching my high school students, uh, the guys in our high school, uh, we're talking about sex and pornography tomorrow it, uh, for high school students. That should be fun. And so I said, um, I said to these guys that I was kind of doing a little preview last week with some of the guys at our school. And I said, guys, you know, um, here's the deal. Here's, here's what we're going to talk about. And the reason I want to talk to you about it isn't because, um, isn't because you, you know it's wrong and you shouldn't do it. And it isn't because I'm only going to be talking to a select group of people. This is a Christian high school full of Christian guys. It's because the t statistics show that with premarital sex and or pornography, the statistics are blowing up in terms of people who are doing it. 
Um, these statistics right here, this is from Covenant Eyes, the uh, Christian website. Um, I mean, just take a look at this. 93% of boys and 62% of girls are exposed to internet porn before the age of 18. Okay, so that's, 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 that's almost 10 out of 10 guys. I mean, who's left? 93%. Um, 70% of boys have spent more than 30 consecutive minutes looking at online porn at least on one occasion. Okay? Uh, 35% of boys have done this on more than 10 occasions. Um, this one here, 83% of boys, 57% of girls have seen, I don't know if I can enlarge that, there you go, uh, have seen group sex on the internet, okay? 69% of boys, 55% of girls have, have seen porn showing same-sex intercourse, uh, and the list goes on and on and on, okay? Um, only 3% of boys and 17% of girls have never seen internet pornography. That's, that's 17 out of 100, 3 out of 100, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now again, this is both Christian and non-Christian teenagers, so I get that. So the, so the numbers may be skewed just a little bit for Christians, but how much? Really, how much? And my point when I talk to these kids tomorrow, and this is why I'm asking for your prayer, is because, um, I don't know how we can get that off. Be gone. There you go. Nice. Yeah. Magic. The reason I'm talking to these guys isn't because they don't know it's wrong. You and I know it's wrong, but we still do it. Because that's the moral will of God. The moral will of God is I don't want you to do it, but I give you free will and your will can do sin. And I said to these teenage guys that I was previewing this with, I said, guys, the reason I don't want you to, the reason we're having this talk isn't because, you know, you're necessarily going to be messed up, though I think that that is a, you know, down the road, you know. But I said, I got a seven-year-old daughter and I want her to date one day when she's 30. And I said, um, I want my daughter to date a Christian. I mean, I just, I believe in being equally yoked. And so I want her to date a Christian. And I want her to date a Christian guy who is having victory in this area. And I'll be honest with you, and this is just kind of, let me just step on my little soapbox here. Yes, I want this guy to be a great guy. I want him to be perfect in every area like all of us parents want, you know, for our kids. We know that that's impossible. So if I got to, if I got to, if I had to select financially responsible, um, good work ethic, um, you know, good worshiper, goes to church, and has abstained from pornography, that's the top of my list. That's the top. Because of what pornography... uh, Guys, the, the statistics are just unbearable in terms of what it does to a relationship. And how a guy views a girl and, and what that does to her and her self-image and, and all of the destructive components involved with pornography. And so my heart is for my seven-year-old daughter. That when she gets to be 17, she doesn't have to look at 10 guys and say, I can only pick seven-tenths of one guy. Because the other 9.3% of you are, you know, you can't get rid of this stuff. Um, by the way, the numbers of women in pornography, viewing pornography, is, is blowing up through the roof too. Uh, do you know why that's happening, by the way? And uh, there's not a lot of research on this, but one of the reasons they're figuring out why this is happening, why women are viewing pornography, even though it's against God's moral command, God's moral will, is because they're almost giving in, they're acquiescing to, to their boyfriends or husbands, saying, I can't fight it. I worked with a lady once. I worked with a lady one time, not in a church, so it was a secular setting, like that makes a difference. And so I'm working with her, and we're sitting around, it's Christmas time, I said, you know, what, what do you get your husband for Christmas? A subscription to Playboy. I was like, what? And she said, yeah, I mean, I know he looks at it, I know he sneaks it around. This was back in the day, too. This was mid-90s. So let me just preface it with that, you know, that, that magazines were still kind of popular. And, and so she said, I know he, he sneaks it around and stuff. So it's kind of like, why just sneak it? Why not just kind of, I figure if I buy it for him at least, you know, then it's out in the open. She's just giving in. She stopped fighting the good fight. Because she couldn't, she couldn't overcome it. She couldn't win. And so more and more girls, teenage girls, are becoming accustomed to, well, it's just going to be a part of our relationship. This is God's moral will, guys, saying, I forbid it. Like, I'm against it. But I created you with free will. So the question is, is when you and I break God's moral commands, and this is any moral command. Look at, uh, if you're still in 1 Thessalonians, just jump over to chapter 5. How about this one, if if you want to get off the, the sex talk? 
Chapter 5, verse 16, rejoice always, Paul, uh, yeah, Paul says. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is what? God's will. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will. Have you done that? Do you do that? So if the answer is no, then you and I are disobeying or breaking God's moral will. But is God frustrated with that? Is God wringing his hands up there saying, oh my gosh, I had such great plans for for this family, for this person, for this planet, and these guys are destroying my plans, and now I'm frustrated with these people. No. Why? Because this doesn't change. This is not affected by you and I and our often misguided decisions. This is. I think that this is the heart of God right here. And I think his heart grieves over the insane decisions I make almost on a daily basis. And this affects your relationship with God in the sense of like it would with a parent. Your parent's not going to disown you prayerfully. Your parent's not going to stop loving you prayerfully. But it affects the way we talk to our parents. It affects the way we, we look at our parents. We look at them if we're involved with things that displease them with shame and guilt and frustration. And so it would be with God. When we're living in sin, as was Adam and Eve, when God said, what are you doing? Where are you guys? They had shame and guilt because they were sinning. They were breaking this will of his. And that's not a good place to be. So I would say if someone said you're living outside of God's will, please, please, please understand it's not this one we're talking about. It's this one. And what we simply mean, it's just a Christian way of saying, hey, you're sinning. So the rectification is um, confess your sins, ask for forgiveness, get back into a right fellowship with God. We're back in, so to speak, okay? Walk by the Spirit so that you might not, may not give in to the desires of the flesh. There's a third will, though, and this one has, the, is confused, has confused me the most. So I'd like your opinion on it. And that is this. Have you ever heard someone say, um, I don't know what God's will is for my life? Or we'll flip it around. God, what is your will for my life? Maybe you've said that. I've certainly said it. Don't we often say that out of... Um, out of frustration, out of confusion. We're at a place in our life where we're kind of, we're we're just stalling. And then we go to God and say, God, what is your will for my life? Um, I don't want to spend too much time on this because we really do have to move along here. But I do want to, I guess, you know, help us understand from the Bible, is is this possible to know? What do you think? I'm just curious. Let me get a couple thoughts. Can I know God's plan for my life? Because back to James, go back to James because that's where we're at. James says, instead you ought to say, verse 15, he says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and also do this or that. Seemingly, James is about the business of saying, hey, if God wants us to do it, we'll do it. So I guess, you know, it begs this bigger question. Um, does God have a plan for my life? And if so, can I know it? Hi, everybody. I'm Diamond. I just want to say I don't think you really know what God's will is for yourself until you get there and you feel like you're doing the right thing. Okay. Um, I appreciate your honesty there. You don't know until you get there. How do you know when you get there? Hey, Mike. Yeah, I'm sorry. I just asked for a follow-up question. Like uh, if you feel like you're really good with children and then you go in the church and you work with children and that's where you feel at peace and you feel that's where you're most whole is teaching young children about the Lord. Okay. So the way I know is by feelings of peace. Yes. Okay. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) What if I'm not at peace? Then I think you need to pray. For? Pray for the direction. Okay. Maybe. Okay. No, that's, <laughs> that's fine. It's an interesting question because, it, again, guys, this is a Christianese kind of a thing. 
gosh, I don't know if I should marry this person. Well, is it God's will for your life? I don't know. Well, you got to know. I know I have to know. And so I'm really struggling with this because I don't know. Well, you should know. Well, I don't. So how do I find out? Well, pray about it. I have been praying about it. And I don't know. Well, do you have peace? One day I do. And the next day I don't. Well, that's not good. No kidding. That's why I came to you for help. So let me quote you scripture, right? So that's what I always do. We quote scripture. What scripture do we quote? Oh, come on. You guys have it plastered all over your houses. What scripture do you quote? What does Jeremiah twenty nine eleven say? For I know the plans for you, says the Lord. Yes. So now we know. Why? Because God has a plan for me. How do you know that? Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. Okay, what's the plan for me? What is the plan? I have plans for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper. That's always good. And to, what does it say? Not to harm you. Do you know who God is talking to in that passage? It's not you. I mean, it's just not, guys. He's, he's talking to the captives of Jerusalem that are in exile from Babylon. And if you read starting in verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 29, it's a total it's a total promise God has given to the people of Jerusalem. And the you there is plural. In other words, he says I'm talking to you, I have plans for you, Jerusalem, as a group, as a people group, as my people. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans for a future and a hope. But man, we've taken that and that's, you know, that's on our mirrors and that's on our walls. And, and guys, I'm not saying that you can't have that up. Please hear me. But I don't think you're any further along in determining if you should marry Susie or Martha or if you should go to ASU or U of A or if you should take a job at Honeywell or IBM than you are before you read Jeremiah 29 11. Jeremiah 29 11 is no more specific than a bunch of other passages in the Bible where God says, if you obey me, guess what you get? Blessings. If you disobey me, guess what you get? Dis, uh, um, uh, refinement. Okay? So obedience equals blessings. Disobedience equals a little spanking. And I think the same thing he's saying here in Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. But boy, we champion that verse. We, we take it to heart because we want to believe God is on our side. I'm telling you guys, God is on your side. But that doesn't get me any further along than, guy, I got to make a decision about, am I going to stay with this job or take this job? So how do I know what you want from me, God? There was a, a comment here before I started blabbering. Go ahead. So I don't know uh, God's will for everybody's individual life. I think, though, that the one thing that we lose sight of is that his will is certainly our sanctification and that when our time on earth is over, uh, he wants us to look more like Jesus. Um, so because of our free will, we're going to make choices and we're going to do things and it's going to take us down paths that may or may not be what he had chosen for us. Yeah. But ultimately, his goal is to get us to look more like Jesus. Absolutely. And you're exactly right. So I saw this in a book once, so I'm stealing it, but Here's, here's maybe the way this thing goes. Because I really do. I don't want us to be frustrated. I don't want you to walk around saying, is this your will, God? 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 And getting to the end of the day, unless there's someone in here who has seen the handwriting of God. Has God written to you? Has God talked to you? Because we always look at passages like Abraham and Moses and Joshua and say, well, they knew what God wanted them to do. Well, how did they know? Yeah, I mean, he spoke to them. Moses. That was a horrible God voice, wasn't it? Moses, let my people go. I mean, okay, what's God's will for your life, Moses? Go to Pharaoh and tell him to let your people go. How do you know that? Because God told me. Like, I audibly heard him tell me that. Okay, so I'm saying this. If you audibly hear God tell you something, do it. I mean, that's, you don't need to pray about it or think about it. If you audibly hear God say, marry her, then marry her. 
If God audibly says, take the job, then take the job. If God says, move, then move. Um, Blackaby did that experience in God, you know, big thing. And I think the church went through it a few years ago and whatnot. And Blackaby's point was, wherever you see God moving, go there and get involved with it. Great, that's fine. But again, that's kind of a no-brainer, guys. If you see God moving over here, then get involved with it. Yeah, because God's moving over here. I'm, I'm asking, what about those people in the desert that are saying, I don't know which way to go here, God, left or right. Which way should I go? And, I'm not, and you know, I'm not talking about minor issues, which route to take today or which cereal to eat. I'm talking about major life decisions. How do you know which one to choose? We're going to have the answer right here. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, we'll go right here and then right here. I'm sorry. Thanks. I, I just wanted to piggyback off something you said a little bit ago. Sure. Where if you disobey his moral law, you're, the, the longer you're going to muddle in the confusion of what is my individual will because you're going against his moral will. Yeah. And then also to figure out your gifts and talents and use those accordingly um, to match up along with the moral law of God, then then you have a better idea. I mean, I'm, I love baseball, but I wasn't good enough to make it to the major leagues, so now I'm in the financial industry. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I mean, and, and you, I think you're exactly right. I think that, guys, I think this lifestyle is frustrating. This is, you may have heard this, you know, I need to be in the center of God's will. I've, heard, I've even heard people say this, I need to be in the center of God's perfect will. Did you ever hear that? Did you ever hear someone say, I, I, God, I need to find out what your perfect will is. Again, that sounds great. It sounds spiritual. I just, I don't see it in here. What does that even mean to be in the center of God's perfect will? Are you in it right now? And if not, why not? And if so, how did you get there? Write a book and I'll buy it. I just don't know how to do it other than what was just mentioned. I don't think this is recommended. This is saying, I've got to find this every day of my life. And rather, maybe it could be like this. God, you have a moral will for me, and that is your commands in the Bible. And I think that they call this the area of freedom. I thank God that when I'm living according to your moral commands, I can make choices. And when I make those choices, I can be confident you're with me. Who do I marry, Sally or Martha? I don't know. They both love Jesus. Okay. I don't know. They're both, you know, they both want to be my helpmate. And okay. Well, you know, who do you, who do you love? Who, you know, make a choice. Okay. I choose, I choose Martha. Great. Marry Martha and know that that is God's what? Will. I don't think you need to stress over, did I pray enough about this? Did I, did I, if you're living this way within this God's moral will, this area of freedom, you go through the list, guys, of what, what James is expecting out of us, what Paul's expecting out of us. Go through this list and see if it checks up. Am I living rightly? That's not a hard thing to look at. Am I living the way God wants me to live? I say make your decision then. I, I find it hard to believe that if you're living rightly before God and you say, God, I think I really, I think that, you know, I think it was said over here. I prayed about it. I got this feeling like, you know, I think you've gifted me and given me talents and skill sets to work in this area or to work in this part of the country or to marry this person because we just, we click. And we get. I say go for it. And I think God's got your back here. I don't think there needs to be a verbal or audible confirmation. And the only reason I say that is because 44 years into my living, I've never gotten one. And my guess is you haven't either. So, so why would God have an individual will for you that he hides from you? Well, I don't know what God's will is and I'm 68 years old. Well, when are you going to know? On your deathbed? I mean, it's a little late. I want to know right now. And so I'm convinced of this. Live like this and then make decisions. Conversely, if you're living outside of this, if you're breaking these commands, please, please, please don't make any big decisions. Please do not make any big decisions when you're in the middle of a habitual sin, a season of sin. Please don't make any decisions that will, that will have extreme ramifications on loved ones. 
oh my gosh, please don't do that. Because I, have, I, I couldn't, if you came to me and said, you know, yeah, you know, I think, Greg, I think, um, I think God wants us to move and we're going to pack up and move to Southern California and, you know, I think it's the thing we should do. And I start talking to you and you're like, yeah, you know, last night I just, you know, I gambled away my paycheck and then I went out and got blitzed and then, you know, met up with a lady of the night and, you know, but I really think this is what God wants me to do. No, it's not. No, it's not. God wants you to repent. God wants you to fall on your face and confess. Please, please, please don't make any big decisions if you're in a season of sin. Um, I know that. I don't know much, guys, but I know that to be true, okay? Be in a a season where you're in God's moral will, where you're walking by the Spirit. You want to know, well, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? I don't know. go Go to Galatians 5. Go to the whole book of Ephesians. Go to 1 Thessalonians 4. Go somewhere and find out, God, what is your moral commands for me? Live in that season. And I think that's what, back to James, I think what James is saying here is now, now I'm under submission to you, God. And God says, great, go. So this passage isn't saying don't plan. It's not saying don't set up, you know, your future. It is saying I'm going to set up my future under your will. And I think God's big enough, guys, that if he wants to change your heart, he will. Have you ever had that happen? You're, you know, you're walking down this way. I think I got it all lined up, all my checked off, all the boxes. And then God says, I think I want you over here. Do you know why you go over here? Is because you're living under God's moral will. You've heard God. It's that subjective, intangible feeling that I think a lot of us in here have felt before. Can't prove it. Wouldn't preach on it. But you know it to be true as long as you, as sure as you know the day is long. I thought we were supposed to go over here. I thought I was supposed to do this. And then all of a sudden I'm over here. How did I get over here? I don't know. I was listening to God. Well, that that's, sounds kind of fluffy. That sounds kind of subjective. Yeah, it, it is. That's the relationship I have with my God. I do what he wants me to do. I listen to, as best I can, listen to his moral will. I obey it as best I can. And then I listen to him. So real quickly, advice then. In terms of if, if you want to know what God, maybe some of you are right now, you need to make a big decision. How do you know if you're making the right decision? Uh, three things that I've learned, and take this for what it's worth. Pray about it. Certainly pray about it. Right? Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Pray about it. Have you prayed about it? If you haven't prayed about a big decision, obviously pray about it. Secondly, I would say seek wise counsel. Uh, Proverbs, uh, Proverbs nineteen twenty. Listen to advice and accept discipline. At the end, you will be counted among the wise. Have you made a big decision without seeking wise counsel? Other godly Christian men and women get their opinion. And then, thirdly, I would say, live in God's moral will. I don't know much more to do when I have to make a decision than those three things. How long? How much? I don't know. That's up to you. But I would argue those three things. Okay. Uh, comment over here, and then let's let's keep going. Uh, somewhere, yeah. I, as far as who's speaking, because I, I looked way in the back. Okay, right there. Okay, thank you. It, I, I don't know the exact scripture, but it says, "Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not to your own understanding. And yeah. always acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths." Yeah, Proverbs three. I know that whenever I have a major decision that affects myself, my my marriage, or my family, yeah. I do surrender that earnestly. And he has a way of either creating a lot of moving parts or putting up a lot of red flags. It lets me know my plan isn't his plan. Sure. That's a great passage. And I think, again, that passage, I've got plaques with that passage on it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust and lower their heart, lean on your understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. So one of the things we can trust in is if I do that, trust in God with all my heart. Uh, in all my ways, acknowledge him and don't lean on my own understanding. What is, what is the benefit or what's the blessing? My path will be made straight. Which I don't think exactly means that I'll have the writing on the wall. But rather, I do think it means that if I trust in God, in his view of success, I will have a successful life. According to his definition of success. Because again, it all goes back to what James is saying here. Here's you, God. Here's me. Here's every area of my life that's coming under your submission. Under submission to you. It's a great, it's a great passage. Yeah, I highly recommend that one. Uh, one over here and then let's jump in. Turn to James chapter 5. Let's just begin that and we'll 
Yeah, see I want to go back to uh, how you said uh, you haven't physically heard God's voice. Sure. Uh, basically, when you say uh, you're, you asked your wife to marry you, and whatever that answer may be, yes or no, Yeah. and you had prayed about that, you ac- actually heard his voice through that person. Could be. You know. Yeah, could be. You know, yeah. whatever it may be for your, the direction that your life will take. Yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, God will use all kinds of methods and means and to communicate with us. I just, I wish, and maybe I'm the only one, but sometimes I wish it'd be clearer, you know? Sometimes I wish, you know, like, I wouldn't have to go to bed thinking now, mm, was that really God? Or I just wish it would be as clear as I'm speaking to you right now. And I envy those Old Testament prophets, I envy them because they had conversations with the God of all creation. I, I mean, you got to be kidding me. And I honestly, I mean, seriously, Moses, what were you thinking? The God of all creation gives you the opportunity to be his spokesman to Pharaoh to let his people go. And you debate God over that. And we're sitting here in 2013 and we're trying to discover what God's will is. And, and you know, we're not hearing it as clear as Moses heard it. That, yeah, but he can use all kinds of means. Uh, right here and then, um, let me pick it up in chapter 5. I think that uh, what you said about, uh, about living with, you know, obeying God's moral law, and that within that there is an area of freedom. Yeah. Uh, and I, and I, think it, I think eventually, if you're, you're and this may not be any help for, for answering a specific question about do I marry person A or I take job B, but eventually you get back to to Solomon, you know, in in, in Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, where he says, "Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter: Fear God, yeah. keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man." What else is there? Yeah, great point. Um, I deal with. You know, my, my life revolves around kids that want to know what college to go to. And it's just a fun process to watch them enter into because a lot of us have been through that process. And they're right on the, on the cusp of what college do I go to? And they have three or four viable options. And they want to know what God's will is. See, guys, and this is the Christian life. This is why I think we meet on Tuesday nights. It's because I want answers like that. I don't want theory. It, theory doesn't do me any good. When I've got a, a kid that's whining at home and I either need to be patient or gracious or discipline him or her. Theory doesn't do me any good when I've got a, co- a high school student saying, I, I've got three colleges. I need your help in determining which one to go to. Theory doesn't do me any good when I've got a young man sitting in front of me saying, seriously, I don't know, do I marry her or not? So I need to know. I need to, I need to know what, to, what counsel to give. And quite honestly, I'm just, I get frustrated, I guess, with myself and with others when the only answer is, well, pray about it. Because a lot of us in the room have done that. Earnestly. Sincerely. And, and because of God's timing and God's sovereignty, the answer hasn't come. As we would like it to come which is audible, clear, concise, to the point, maybe in a text, and let me just move on. We would love that. We honestly would. Because it demonstrates such a lack of faith. It really says for us to God, hey, just give me the answer now so I can move on with my next decision. And maybe God is concerned about the process of decision-making more so than the decision itself. Maybe God wants you and I to be on our faces more than we are. Instead of as I'm driving to work, God, should I keep this job or should I leave it? And I'm on my way to work and I give him that five-minute prayer as I'm getting off the freeway. Maybe God wants more of, Greg, spend some time with me. Um, you know, you can make a decision, whatever decision you want, but spend some time with me. I, I, want, I want to spend time. I miss you. Um, maybe, I don't know. Um, okay, chapter five, here we go. Last chapter of the book of James. In, in two and a half weeks, we will be through all of these verses, but look at verse one. Come now, he says, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. I can see like clouds gathering and 
This is just a, this is James, I think, at his finest. He does not mince words. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the, did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived luxuriously on earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your, your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. We talked about wealth a few months ago, so I don't want to belabor the point. But isn't it interesting that I can't think of a single passage where God condemns the poor person? Can you? Can you think of a passage or a chapter where God speaks ill against those who don't have? Other than Proverbs speaks to the lazy person. I get that. I get the fact that if you're idle, if you don't have any money because you're idle and lazy, yeah, then. But if you're sincerely without money, I can't think of a passage in the Bible where God says, you wicked poor person. It'll be harder for a poor person to get to heaven than it is a camel to go through the eye. No, it's, it's always the wealthy. It's always the rich. The poor person didn't walk away from Jesus. Why is that? And why do we struggle with that in terms of accepting it? We talked a few months ago about who is wealthy and who isn't because the majority of us, when we read that passage, said, well, now we can, I can rest easy because he's not talking about me because I'm not rich. And without reiterating what we said a few months ago, you are rich. If you have food in your belly, if you have a roof over your head, if you have clothing on your body, uh, 75% of the world um, doesn't have that. You're better than 75% of the world. In terms of wealth, you're rich. I'm rich. And we don't need, I don't need to prove that to anyone. We are. Um, the way I know this, I guess, is when's the last time you cleaned out your refrigerator? Why do you have to clean out your refrigerator? Because things went bad because you didn't need it in a timely manner. So you had to clean it out. You had to throw away excess. I just couldn't get to all the cheese. I just couldn't eat all the bread, a whole entire loaf. So I had to throw it out. It got moldy. I mean, we clean out our refrigerators, guys. And if that is an evidence of how wealthy we are, I don't know what is. We shop over and over and over again. Did you hear that Apple is, is doing buybacks now with their stock? Um... They're buying back like $60 billion worth of stock so that they can run it up, so they can increase the, because it's at a low right now or lower than it usually is, so they're buying it back so you can actually sell back your stock now and make millions yourself and then they'll make millions upon millions. And we we live in a country where um, we struggle with passages like this because it's, because it's convicting. James comes along to you and to me and he says, weep and howl for your miseries are coming upon you. Not to the poor person. I believe it's to you and to me. How do I know that? Um, I asked my students, go to Revelation chapter 2. I asked my students um, to look at a couple of passages in Revelation where Jesus is talking to seven churches. And as they did this, we were doing a study on the church. I said, now out of these seven churches, which one most looks like the U.S. in terms of the church of the U.S.? There are seven churches that Jesus has an angel right to. And let me just read one of them. I think this was the general consensus. It's the church of Laodicea in chapter 3, starting in verse 14. See if this sounds anything like the church of the United States in the 21st century. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, verse 14 of chapter 3, write the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I would that you were cold or hot. Now, I just want to make a point here. I think that, I I don't think that what Jesus is saying here is, I wish that you were on fire Christian or or a stinking pagan. 
but rather back in the first century, they had aqueducts basically, and they would transport water. One was for hot water and one was for cold water. And it was because hot water serves a different purpose than cold water. I don't think Jesus is saying here, I'd rather you'd be on fire for me or just completely against me. I don't know why he would ever say that. But rather what I think he's saying here is, I wish that you were useful for something. Hot water disinfects and cleanses, cold water refreshes. Be useful for something. But he says to this church, you're neither. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. He says in verse 17, and this is where I think it affects me the most, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And yet you don't know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy gold from me refined by fire that you may become rich in white garments that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Now, here's another verse that we hear all the time in evangelistic circles. But this was written to the church of Laodicea. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and dine with him and he with me. He's saying to the believers here, to the church at Laodicea, you're lukewarm. You're not, you're not useful for anything. And I would just assume vomit you out of my mouth. And it's because you're rich. And because of your wealth, you say to yourself, and probably not to anyone else, certainly not in church circles, I don't need anything. What do I need? Because truth be told, those of us who get paychecks every couple of weeks, when's the last time you got your paycheck or got direct deposit and thanked God? But too often, we get our paycheck and we say, I did a good job this week. It's all about me. I earned this money. And we forget who the giver of good things is. It's all about me. And God says to this church in Laodicea, not only have you done that and become wealthy and you say you have no need for nothing, you don't know that you're wretched and miserable, poor and blind and naked. You don't know that. And guys, I gotta, I don't know. I see the church in America today and just have to wonder. I wonder if God were writing letters to churches today, if this would be our letter, if this would be the letter to Cornerstone, if this would be the letter to Sun Valley and to Mission and to the Grove and to Mountain Park and to First Baptist. And I wonder, you think you know what's going on, but the reality is you are blind and naked and miserable. Not because you don't have, you have plenty but because you don't recognize the giver of what gave you these things. And James then, I think, echoes that. And he says, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. You have no idea when your time is up. Remember the story in Luke chapter 12, right? The guy just builds more and more and he's got overflow and so he builds more and more vats. And what does Jesus say to him in Luke chapter 12? He says, you fool, don't you know that tonight, this very night, your life is required of you. You will die tonight. We, we hoard and we, and we covet. And, and James, I think, is encouraging us that those things will consume your flesh like fire. So how do you know if you're a hoarder? How do you know if you have too much? Um... I don't know. You tell me. How do, how do we know if I have too much? One thing I know is, are you living off of 90% of your income? Are, I mean, if you make $80,000 and tax season just came about, if I were to look at your tax returns, would I see $8,000 given to charitable income or charitable donations, particularly the church? Would I see that? Would I see that in that field of deductions would i see charitable donations would i see eight thousand dollars if you made 80 grand that's 10 percent. that's that's basic math would i see that if you made fifty thousand dollars did you give away five thousand dollars that's just a small indicator if i know that you're not doing what james wants us to do is there anything wrong with being wealthy no it's the love of that wealth that gets us into trouble 
And the love of that wealth, quite honestly, has some of us in here not giving. And you know it, and I know it. I don't. You know that. And this isn't a conviction message. This is simply, I want us to understand who James is talking to here because he's mad at these people. And rightly so. I think this is what we call righteous anger. Um, this, is, this started in the Old Testament and works, its, works itself all the way through the New Testament. God, guys, is not a big fan of those of us that keep. But he loves what? A cheerful giver. Okay? So do that. Um, did I tell you last week that, did I tell you the Starbucks story? So I'm at Starbucks and I go into Starbucks and, and um, uh, over on Dobson and Chandler, just want to buy a drink or whatever. So I stand in line, I go up to the thing and, and I get a pound of coffee. I was out of coffee and I got a protein, blah, blah, and, and a cup of coffee. And the guy standing there, he's just writing it down on a piece of paper. And he's like, you know, just, you know, and he's doing that with everyone. And so I handed him my debit card and he's like, now um, the lady over there sitting over there, she's paying for everyone. Like everyone, not just you, the entire store. He had, I want to say he had three or four pages of, of inventory written down because she was paying for, for 20, 30, 40 minutes or however long he was, she was paying for everyone. I have to guess, guys, it was, it was upwards to a couple thousand dollars that she was just taking care of everyone. So I go over to her. So I'm like, you know. So I go over to her and I said, um, Gosh, I'm, I am just super thankful. I, what brought this on? And you know what she said to me? Lady in about her 50s, just sitting there watching everyone do the same thing to this guy, which was hand debit card, be confused for a second, look around, more confusion, and then look to the lady and just kind of wave or say thank you. You know, everyone was doing that. We were dumbfounded. It was funny, too, to watch the people in front of me. They didn't want to get free stuff. You know, I was like, no, I want to pay for this. And, the, and the, so the guy at the register was like, no, I, it's free. You don't have to pay for it. We struggle with that. Anyway, so I go over to her and I said, I, I don't know what to say, but thank you very much. And she said, you know what? I just want, I don't know. I just, I don't have much time left. And I just want to share the love of Christ with people. Yeah, it was unbelievable. So, um, I'm not telling you what to do with your money, certainly. But I am telling you this. The Bible never condemns the people who don't have money. The Bible is full of condemnation of those who have money and don't know how to use it properly and glorifying in a way that's glorifying to God. We see that time and time and time again. Don't fight that. In the time you and I have left on earth, guys, don't fight that principle. But rather, if God has blessed you with some money, praise God for that. And then be a cheerful giver. I have more money now um, in the past three years since Leanne passed away. I have more money now than I've ever had as a single parent. I have more money now than we ever had as a couple of a double income couple. I have more money now. And I can't tell you really how I got it, honestly. But I know I have it. And one of the principles I'm trying hard to live by is I got to give this stuff away. I have to. I never know when my last day is. And God forbid I should get to heaven and God should say, I gave you all of that money. What did you do with it? And my answer would be, well, I was planning to give it away. I just didn't get around to it. You don't know when your time is going to come. So pick up a meal for someone. Help someone out that's got a sign on the side of the street. Give to Cornerstone. Um, We have a dozen plus projects you could give to around here. Uh, help somebody out. There's a ministry that the guys get together once a month. They help single moms and widows fix their cars. Give to that ministry. Buy some motor oil. Do whatever. But please, please, please do not hoard it. Don't wait for the rainy day where where that rainy day may never come and God's going to hold you accountable. So don't be unwise. Um, But be a giver. God loves it. God loves a cheerful giver. Okay? And that way we don't have to read passages like this and Be convicted about it because we know one thing. You're not talking about me here, James. And that's a good thing. Let's pray. Father, thanks for today and tonight. Um, And God, I I do thank you that your word is, is to the point. No beating around the bush here. So God, maybe tonight if there's someone in here that maybe is struggling either with, um, you know, a decision to make or uh, what we just talked about, they have some resources and they're kind of being stingy with it. God, that you would free us up. Maybe tonight's a night of freedom. 
that we can make good decisions as well as be cheerful givers. And, and God, we will give you the praise. I'm so excited, Father, that um, life isn't about any one decision, but it's a culmination of all the decisions we make. And, and maybe some of us are, are in need of a good streak of good decisions. May you be gracious tonight, God. May you be merciful tonight and give that to us. Maybe we can get to the end of the week, maybe in a couple of weeks, look back and say, man, that not a perfect life, but boy, there was a bunch of good decisions there. Praise God. And God, to that end, we will give you the praise and glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week.